Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you aren't receiving my weekly email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. And don't forget that Unchained and Unconfirmed are now on YouTube. You can go subscribe there to be alerted to all the latest episodes of both podcasts. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me on. You wrote a really interesting piece on Medium recently, and I wanted to discuss it. You talked about how cryptocurrency threatens the state. So what are the ways in which it does that? Well, it may not uh, be threatening the state right now, but uh, the the point I was trying to make in the article was that uh, that is uh, sort of the whole idea, you know, that, uh, that the cryptocurrency is manifestly political by its very nature. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't, you know, try and ignore that reality. Uh, instead, we should uh, essentially embrace it uh, and prepare for the the battles to come, basically. And so the article was a, was a, a call to arms, uh, so to speak. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, I think the way the main way that cryptocurrency will likely affect uh, states is by making it much harder to impose capital controls as a tool of uh, monetary policy. Uh, and and we already have some examples of that. There's sort of a, some early anecdotal evidence, maybe, that the popularity of, of Tether has to do with uh, Chinese folks trying to escape the capital controls. Uh, we know that there are Bitcoin markets down in Venezuela, um, Argentina, Turkey, all these places where uh, inflation is pretty high. Uh, so, you know, it's it's still relatively immature and a lot of tools are required to make it easier to onboard people, um, especially in, in these uh, more frontier markets into cryptocurrency. But uh, I think it's already beginning to affect the state. Uh, and certainly central banks have started to wonder a little bit about whether uh, cryptocurrency is going to destabilize uh, kind of the current uh, mon- monetary regime. And when you say that cryptocurrency is political in its uh, like inherently in its nature, why do you say that? So I mean that in two ways. So the first is that just to take Bitcoin, for instance, Bitcoin is impregnated uh, with kind of political ideas. Uh, and uh, many people would uh, contend that that's a bad thing, you know, because maybe that makes it more exclusionary or it uh, requires that you have certain beliefs before using it. Uh, but I don't really mean it in that way. I just mean to say that there are certain values that uh, very much underscore Bitcoin and kind of motivated its creation. And 
Satoshi kind of hinted at those uh, in a few places. Uh, so those would be values like, you know, creating new units of money should be kind of costly and, you know, nobody should have an unfair advantage uh, in doing that. So there shouldn't be any seniorage. Uh, and, you know, the supply of money um, should be really predictable uh, and there should be no kind of monetary discretion in the system. I think both of those are sort of political concepts, you know, and they point to a really definite alternative uh, to the the current system that predominates. And then the other way I would say cryptocurrency is political is that these are institutions and as long as there are decisions being made, there are decision makers and there is power and the, you know, the hated G word, uh, there's governance as well. And so that is a reality that I think many people, uh, many of the people that lead and design cryptocurrencies um, and public blockchains would prefer to ignore. Uh, and, you know, they like to claim that these systems are fully decentralized and that there are no, no one really has any privileged status within them. Uh, but, uh, you know, basically in the article, I'm saying that's not the case. There is always power. There's always decision makers, and oftentimes the debates are really political. And I mean, we should probably seek to minimize that, but we should definitely acknowledge it as a reality. You also say in your piece that Bitcoin has already affected central bank policy. How so? Which central banks? That might have been uh, uh, maybe a slightly uh, uh, utopian or ambitious thing to say. But uh, yeah, one thing I say is that... Um, the currency competition is like outrunning a bear. You know, you only have to outrun your slowest friend. So, the dollar is is probably the the soundest sovereign currency, uh, and so I would say it's the least threatened by the existence of cryptocurrency. Uh, but so the ones that are the most affected by cryptocurrency, even in its very incipient state, are you know it kind of logically follows that they are the ones which are the most inflationary that the citizens want to hold the least. And now that we have this online exit ramp from sovereign currencies, which is relatively frictionless, you know, people have a choice of where to, to save their assets. Uh, and so we absolutely have, there is some data showing that Venezuelans uh, had fairly vibrant, you know, peer-to-peer uh, Bitcoin to Bolivar markets for sure, they might actually have preferred dollars in that case, uh, but uh, there's definitely been some usage of uh, of Bitcoin down there. Yeah, um, and I, so I would say, yeah, I will yeah. say, I I spoke with local Bitcoins. I, actually, I think this was on unconfirmed, and they said the behavior they were seeing was that people were, uh, yeah, converting their bolivars to USD, but using Bitcoin to do so, and then again using Bitcoin as a way to convert it back when they needed the bolivars. So, um, right. So, yeah. so with with Bitcoin being actually the dollarization rails, which is pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. I was reading through some monetary history to find out how other dollarization events had mechanically occurred, and I found out that the Zimbabwe dollarization was a little bit impaired because there was a shortage of actual physical dollars um, Mm. because it was really difficult to get 
you know, hard currency into the country because uh, it had limited access to, you know, those markets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe the situation would be different today if they could have used Bitcoin and then go to a stable coin or something. Right, right. Or or just converted into a stable coin. Directly, yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the ways that, um, that yeah, the cryptocurrency, even if it's not being directly used as the ultimate uh, savings device, it could still be a rails uh, to harder currencies. So, you know, as you mentioned, you're sort of segmenting your answer into um, <laughs> the slow friends who can't run around the bear, uh, outrun the bear, which like would be me uh, in real life. But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, then it, do you think that Bitcoin could be uh, or could affect uh, central bank policy in developed stable economies in any way? Uh, it certainly depends on uh, the path that this industry takes. While Bitcoin is it, and just cryptocurrency, the asset class is still relatively small. I think the effect would really be minimal. But um, the point I do make in the article is that um, even in wealthier countries that have capital controls, the existence of you know relatively frictionless ways to avoid that definitely kind of impairs uh, the the state's uh, monetary privilege a little bit. So it depends. I, I think China, you would say, is, is characterized as a, um, a developed uh, country. There's certainly a reason for their hostility uh, to Bitcoin. You know, I, th- I think what's the limit? Is it $50,000 worth of outflows a year yeah. is the maximum? I think so. Uh, yeah. I, I would love to see more data on uh, usage of cryptocurrency um, on OTC markets in China. It's, but I guess those brokers have a very small incentive to actually be public about it. Yeah, honestly, what so many of my sources who go there say is that there's a very, very, very active OTC market. And it's sort of like the authorities kind of look the other way. That's sort of what people are saying. But anyway, um, all right, so we're going to discuss some of the other non-Bitcoin coins in a moment, as well as kind of wider global events. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the privacy-enhanced compliance initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Nick Carter. So in your piece, you also take what I'm just going to broadly call altcoins to task. So are there any coins besides Bitcoin that you view as legitimate or promising? Well, I think that's the question is... uh you know, what constitutes uh, legitimacy. So I, you know, I, I think at this point you can't deny that, um, you know, Ethereum has a really vibrant community uh, and kind of organic groundswell of usage uh, and development. 
beyond that, I would say uh, it's very sparse. And that's my, uh, you know, highly subjective opinion. But I mean, if you look at the data, uh, very few chains aside from Bitcoin and Ethereum have any real usage whatsoever. But the, the problem I identified in the article is that there has been insufficient attention given to the legitimacy conferring factors for, you know, the long tail of altcoins. And so the emphasis has always been on technical innovation and, uh, you know, some of which were really marginal technical innovations and really insufficient attention to uh, the things that I believe matter, which is like, you know, how do you ensure that the developers can't abuse their privilege within the system? Are there checks and balances? You know, is the monetary policy credible, for instance? And oftentimes what we actually see in these systems is those credibility endowing factors are traded off uh, to achieve, you know, glamour metrics or technical thresholds. Um, so for instance, um, not to pick on a particular coin, but in EOS, you know, the, the uh, transactions per second was, was prided at all costs. And the way that that was achieved was by having a much smaller validator set. And then it emerged that the validators were maybe colluding or, um, you know, engaging in, in mutual voting uh, in kind of a collusive way. And, you know, I think that is that that poses a much greater, you know, long term threat to the to the legitimacy of the network, which is not outweighed by the the marginal kind of technical enhancement there. Uh, so this piece was partly uh, me uh, kind of trying to, you know, convince people that maybe their priorities needed to be recalibrated. Well, one other thing I wanted to ask about was in your piece, you had this sentence, the only cryptocurrencies worth creating are those that aim to be money. And yet, just now with your remarks with me, you did say that uh, Ethereum, you know, obviously had some traction and was quote unquote legitimate. I, I guess that was my phrasing, but I was just wondering, so do you, do you still feel that that's the case? Because I, I don't think Ethereum's aiming to be money at all. So... Well, I I would say Ethereum probably should contend and, and aim to be money. Uh, and I think we noticed a little bit of a, a recalibration uh, where initially it was, you know, computational uh, gas, like the lubricant in the system. And then more recently, you know, certain high-profile Ethereans have, have been saying, well, actually, Ethereum itself is money. You know, it's like a high-powered collateral for, you know, for instance, DeFi applications and so on. So my view, you know, I, as someone who's very much outside of the Ethereum community, so maybe this is very much unsolicited advice, would be, yeah, absolutely, you know, optimize for Ethereum as money because the value-giving thing here is whether people choose to hold the coin for a long period of time, you know, have a long-holding preference. And if it's just being used as, uh, as working capital, uh, the folks using the coin would try and minimize their exposure to it, only hold it for the duration of the period that they needed it for. Uh, so I, I guess I have a contrarian view on that. Yeah, I, I, I actually think part of the new, or part of the new emphasis on Ethereum uh, or Ether as money has to do with 
this transition to proof of stake because I did see people saying there that you know, if the chain is going to be secure, then they do need to focus on the value of ether. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, one other, I, I definitely agree. Yeah, and one other cryptocurrency of, or let's not call it cryptocurrency. We'll say digital currency uh, because I know some people will take me to task if I call it a cryptocurrency that is in the news a lot and probably will affect the development of the whole space. Has to do with Libra. So what is your take on kind of what is going to happen with that and how that will affect the development of the space? Well, I think um, if Libra launches, it'll be a really uh, critical development, maybe second only in importance uh, behind the creation of Bitcoin in terms of the history of the industry. It's a big if, though. I, I don't have confidence that it will launch. And why is that? Well, it's just that you know, the team behind it was so, uh, they seem to be very brash in terms of announcing their t- intentions to create a new uh, monetary standard, uh, you know, a new uh, unit of account. And I think the likely effect, if they went live in a lot of these developing countries with weaker local currencies, would be an outflow from those currencies to the harder currency, which would be Libra at that point. Uh, you know, if it was chiefly backed by dollars, in theory, it would be much uh, more stable and it would, um, you know, depreciate much more slowly uh, than the local currencies. And this was, this to me strikes me as extremely ambitious and idealistic. So, and, and also somewhat hostile to a lot of these developing uh, central banks. If you have, you know, hundreds of millions of their citizens given the option to store their savings in Libra, I think they they would jump at the chance, uh, which would make you know make it more difficult to manage the local sovereign currency. Um, well, wait, I'm sorry, you but you seem to say that the better route would have been for them to create a digital dollar because wouldn't that have had the same effect? Well, I think it would have been maybe better received in the U.S. You, you know because they at that point the. Uh, impression would not have been that they were trying to replace the dollar as a monetary standard. And maybe that's, well, I mean, you know, the history has not been written yet. We'll see what happens. Uh, but I think it would have been easier to sell Libra as advancing U.S. interests if they said, yeah, like this thing is going to be, you know, a pegged dollar and we're going to dollarize all these countries directly. I mean, I think in effect that's what would happen anyway under their current configuration. Um, it's just that you know, they're doing it under the guise of creating a completely new unit of account, whereas the dollar is right now the default unit of account. Yeah. I I wonder if part of it is because they view themselves, I mean, they are really a global company um, and they didn't probably want to appear to be too US centric. Well, anyway, so, 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 okay. So let's just assume that Libra does go through. So then what do you think the effect will be on Bitcoin in the crypto space? Well, I don't know about Bitcoin. I mean, I, I've i said that I think they're going to keep opening the Overton window of acceptability. You know, Bitcoin is a, a non-corporate, uh, non-state money. Libra would be a corporate non-state money. I think the, the, the most meaningful effect is that people begin to realize that money has been unbundled from the state uh, and it's not necessarily part of those services that the state is expected to provide for its citizens, uh, which I think is good for all cryptocurrency generally. 
in as much as that we're just going through this process of becoming attenuated to, you know, non-sovereign uh, money systems. So I think that would be the most significant uh, effect. Uh, I, I don't know if they'll be successful. I, I think ultimately the kind of political tax surface is really, really big. And if I were a developing central banker in a developing nation, I would tr- try and shut them down right away. Yeah, well, as we saw, France already is uh, saying that and, and they're not even a developing nation. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's. I think it's all about positioning. You know, I guess Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have totally flown under the radar somehow, uh, despite uh, people like me saying that they're hostile to the state. I guess maybe I uh, a few people reached out to me and said I shouldn't have written this article uh, because I was <laughs> making our game plan known <laughs> to, to politicians. Okay, well, in case people didn't get the memo, these ideas have been out there for quite a long time. So um, it's not like what you were saying was brand new, um, yeah, which isn't to discount what you were saying. Um, but No, I yeah, agree. Just, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that they did that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, also because, you know, it's not like Bitcoin has anybody at the helm being like, we're going to take down the state. Um, but it is true that, of course, yeah, there are ways in which this could play out where it could um, be threatening someday. And I mean, to be to be clear, I'm not uh, advocating for anarchy. I just think that um, it's, it's likely that um, the set of things we come to expect from the state uh, ultimately ends up not including uh, manage a monetary system. Uh, and I think we have plenty of evidence that they're not as good at that as they think they are, uh, with with the last decade being really compelling evidence of that. Yeah, well, we will see how things play out. All right, Nick, well, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Rich Struffolino, and Josh Durham. Thanks for listening. 